information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. When I started working on patients in 2005, everybody was stealth. They correctly felt like their lives were in danger if they were out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so everybody that I operated on for their top surgery or whatnot at that point, they had already lost their family. Mm -hmm. They oftentimes had lost their jobs. And so they were secretly living this way. And that has completely changed now. It's never an easy road. I don't think that's going to change, you know, instantly. It's still going to be hard. But I think it's harder for people who have lived in denial for decades rather than the people who have figured out, oh man, I can do this successfully now and be happy. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive, your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Aaron Everett. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Erin Everett, nurse practitioner. On today's episode, I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Keely McPhee. Dr. Keely McPhee is a gender uh, surgeon and cosmetic plastic surgeon who's been practicing for over 15 years. She's located in the Durham, North Carolina area, but obviously receives patients from all kinds of surrounding areas. She's really passionate about transgender medicine and making sure that her patients become more comfortable in their own skin and more confident in providing affirming care. She focuses on breast surgery, genital reconstruction, cosmetic enhancements, and general cosmetic surgery as well. She's been practicing since 2005 and primarily does surgery at the Duke Regional Hospital, which is part of Duke University Health System. Dr. McPhee earned her undergraduate degree at University of Massachusetts in Amherst, finishing with summa cum laude, which is no surprise. She's brilliant, she's smart, she's passionate, and she provides a warm, caring environment for all patients to receive care, but particularly those ones in the gender community. Without further ado, I'd love to introduce Dr. Keely McPhee. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Keely McPhee. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe a fun fact and like your chosen pronouns, that type of thing. Okay, sure. Uh, Well, my name, first of all, is I was named for Jean-Claude Keeley, and he was in the Olympics in 1968, uh, the downhill skiing. And so I was named for that gentleman. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, but just spelled differently. Mm -hmm. My pronouns are she and her. And so I'm cisgender, and I work primarily with the umbrella term of transgender patients. Excellent. So what brought you into this field of uh, working with the transgender community? Well, it sort of was a surprise, kind of landed in my lap. In 2005, I started my own practice in Raleigh, and at that point, I 
went around the community of plastic surgeons to introduce myself. And one older gentleman was secretly or somewhat secretly working on transgender patients and his wife wanted him to get out of that. So it happens right at the time when I walked into his office to say hello Mm -hmm. and he suggested that I get, you know, involved and start working with these patients if I was interested. And of course I said, sure. So it grew from there. Uh, Initially I was doing all of plastic surgery, so general plastics a lot of breast cancer reconstruction, you name it, I was doing it. But as time went by, my favorite patients were always the transgender patients that I got to work with. And uh, that kind of grew with word of mouth and then marketing. And I eventually felt like I was kind of burned out with the breast cancer and that sort of Mm -hmm. uh, challenging, sad of patients that were still passing away. And I was always so happy to get to work with my trans patients that I decided I'm going to focus on this. And so that was in 2014 that we decided to just focus everything on the trans patients. I, at that time, also went for some training. And in, in 2014, there were no training programs for doing a, a vaginal plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. So I was going to different trans conferences and meeting other surgeons and asked if I could watch them do their surgery and learn from them. And that was encouraged by a couple of them. So that's how I started off with learning how to do the vaginoplasty. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's to your point, it's such a rewarding community to work with because most of the stories are happy. And to see a patient and provide them the affirming care and just see them so much happier, like in their own skin is just an amazing experience, really. Absolutely. I'm so lucky to be a part of that. And the transformations that I see are incredible. Uh, I'm glad that you get to take part in that, too, because Mm -hmm. it's very rewarding, Um, you know, having somebody come in who won't look you in the eye and they're so anxious and depressed transforming into a bubbly happy confident person is amazing Mm -hmm. and so that's just like the best part of the day to get to see uh, somebody transform in that way I totally agree So, you know, you offer a wide variety of procedures at your clinic that you do for not just regular plastics, but also affirming surgeries. Out of all of those, what would you say is your most fun? Like, what do you prefer to do? Oh, wow. Let's see. The most kind of intriguing and fun is a rhinoplasty. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. So we don't do a lot of airway work, meaning helping Mm -hmm. improve breathing, but Mm -hmm. it often does go hand in hand with the aesthetic changes. Mm -hmm. And so that's great to help somebody breathe better on a daily basis. Uh, But the the detailed work of the rhinoplasty, getting to work with their cartilage and reshaping that is a whole lot of fun in the operating room. It's great because I can see how things are going to look. And then we have to be really patient because it takes about a year 
for all the swelling to go down after that surgery, but oh, that's wow. a great, it's, yeah, it's a long time. It's a very slow recovery process, but it's a lot of fun to get to do that one. That's mm-hmm. so interesting. I never knew that it took that long for it to right. like, get your final product. That's a lot of yeah, patience. <laughs> it is. It does. So you can imagine we're reshaping all the underlying structure. Yeah. And so the overlying skin needs to shrink down and conform. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a slow process. But yeah. it's, it's worthwhile. That's awesome. Sure. And so with that, what does that play into like your facial feminization? Do you find yourself doing that more with the trans community or do you do that more with the cis community? Well, I actually have primarily trans community as my patients now. Oh, that's so cool. Um, because we, we, we are doing that in conjunction with facial feminization a lot of times. And we've just focused so much on our trans clientele that oftentimes people will come, they've had some other gender affirming surgery and they'll come in for a rhinoplasty too, um, which may or may not be related to their gender uh, identity. But mm-hmm. usually it, it seems like more and more where the person or the clientele is going to be contacting me just because of our connection with the transgender surgeries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Um, and I knew you had to focus on trans care, but I didn't realize that that's the bulk of your patients. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we do still work with anybody of any gender identity, but more and more, I would think now our, we're at like 90, 95% of our clientele are coming in for some uh, gender-related surgery. Okay. So with that in mind, what kind of experience would they expect, like kind of, you know, in your office with your front staff? I mean, I assume that they're all culturally sensitive to the needs. Oh, completely. Um, Well, nowadays, because of COVID, everything's going on through the internet, Mm -hmm. email, and phones. But I have a really small office, and Sue is... Uh, the person that people would be talking to before they get to talk with me. And she is she is always getting compliments from our clients because she's so patient and kind and she and she's been working with me for years and years. So she's fully conscious and trained with working with anybody of different identities. Oh, that's great. And so most of your uh, patients will interact with her at some point. Yes. Oh, definitely. Sure. She's vital for getting anybody into the operating room. So, you know, I'll be doing medically related or surgically related information while she's doing all the administrative work for helping everybody. Okay. That's wonderful. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And do you find that most of your procedures, like a commercial payer is starting to pay for more of them or are people still paying out of pocket? I would guess at this point, about 75% of our people are getting some insurance coverage, which is amazing because in 2014, when we started focusing primarily on gender, nobody was covering it. And it was really, really frustrating. Mm -hmm. So actually at that point, I got out of insurance networks uh, because they were so unreliable or really defeating to work with in many ways. And over the years, we've always helped everybody that has the insurance benefits to get pre-authorized for surgery mm-hmm. and then to get reimbursed as much as possible. 
because we require the surgeon's fee up front, just like with most like dental practices, mm-hmm. um, we'll ask for the surgeon's fee mm-hmm. and then help people get reimbursed on the back end. And that's worked out well. As long as we get pre-authorization for everybody, we have succeeded in getting reimbursement um, nicely. And it's great that more and more insurance companies are covering the procedures. And I think a lot of that has to do with large organizations, corporations that people have their insurance through have supported providing the care for trans surgeries. Mm -hmm. So that's helped a lot. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I have talked to patients before who have felt very defeated when, you know, say top surgery is covered and but their facial feminization surgery is not covered. And mm-hmm. have encouraged those patients to then go to and talk to their HR because, you know, I try to explain to them, like, if you're not in the field, you don't necessarily know that that's an aff- like an affirming surgery that's medically required. And then they've yes. able, been able to get it written into their insurance policy. Yes, which is awesome. And, it, yeah. and for these large corporations, it really is not costing them very much money. Um, so no. I do the same thing for sure. Yeah, and it's, it, just, it's, it's interesting just ignorance. It's Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, you know, like recently we had somebody whose genital reconstruction was covered, but then her breast augmentation was not. And they were they had actually eliminated it completely. And even though I talked to their medical director, they said, nope, not going to happen, uh, which is really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, why? You know, <sighs> like it doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah. Just cherry picking what they're going to cover. Yeah. Hopefully more and more will start to realize. Um, The other thing that's really rare to get covered is facial feminization Mm -hmm. procedures. So that is always kind of a surprise when the insurance has said yes. Yes. We will hope that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I would agree. Most people end up paying out of pocket for that no matter where they go. Um, But it was unique for this one person to be able to get it covered. And added into their benefits, you know, mm-hmm. like huge advocacy work there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, what, what is it like in Georgia for state coverage Our, in North Carolina? We had full coverage and then had a state treasurer eliminate all of the transgender coverage from the state health plan. And they're being sued, fortunately, by a bunch of our patients and uh, Lambda Legal. They're pursuing this in North Carolina. But what has happened in Georgia? So as far as I understand, and I do not quote me on this because it, I feel like it varies a lot. But I recently learned that um, with the state plans that they originally used to cover like top surgeries and everything and now um it's not all inclusive and they are there's a lot of exclusions to it and making it very challenging and so i do think that i you know i was talking to somebody about this recently actually that they are trying to take legal action because some of those rights were being taken away for coverage yeah well hopefully all 50 states will finally have that available uh for everybody but yeah piecemeal at the point at this point in time Right, right. Exactly. In general, one of our biggest payers for Georgia State uh, Insurance does a pretty good job if you use the right codes and whatnot. Sometimes you have to get a little creative, but they do cover it, but just not everything that they used to. 
but that's, you know, an ever moving target too. And I'm actually, I mean, cause I work more like trying to get medications and such covered. Sure. Um, sure. and I've seen a huge expansion on that in general, as far as okay. getting hormones, because it used to be like, we only did injectable testosterone because people could get it for affordably on GoodRx because no one was going to pay for it. And now I can get that covered and even some newer branded oral testosterones that are very new out are getting covered for people in the gender community. You know, not big payers yeah. like United, but other ones, Blue Cross Blue Shield and better. Those ones are definitely covering those types of therapies. And it's just amazing because back when I first started doing transgender medicine, it just, you know, it wasn't. You really had to just yeah. slim pickings on what you could get. And then you're also trying to link people up with different programs that were going to give them scholarship money or, you know, quote, mm-hmm. scholarship money to help pay for their medical expenses. Right, right. Yeah. So in that regard, I have seen a huge expansion in coverage. But in general, no, it's still very limited. Got it. Does that ever change your requirements for surgery when someone's preparing to come to you for, say, vaginoplasty or top surgery? Well, if they're using insurance, then we have to jump through the hoops that the insurance company wants. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we don't use insurance, I use informed consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the insurance companies all have their own set of rules. Mm-hmm. Primarily, they're following the WPATH standards of care mm-hmm. that were a couple of years old, actually. Uh, but when we have insurance benefits, we have them usually get two letters of mental health provider support showing that they've been living full-time as female for a year. Oftentimes they ask that the patient's been on hormones for a year. So those are the standards that most of the insurance companies ask for. Okay. But for you, yourself, if you're not billing insurance, you don't require those types of letters. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Well, that's nice to know because that can be a a roadblock for patients. It can be, and it's really annoying. The insurance company is going to do what they're going to do. Right, so, right. So I don't want to be blocking people. Like, for example, I've had patients that have lived full-time for 20 years. You know, decades of their life has lived full-time in their new identity. And I'm not going to make them go back to get counseling done so that then they can produce a letter. That that would just be ridiculous, in my opinion. I completely That's just agree. One example, yeah. yeah. I completely agree. I, I think informed consent should be enough for everybody. But you right. know, like I always connect people with mental health care providers for transitional support, right. and just because who couldn't use therapy sometimes. <laughs> right. But I don't think um, that it should be a requirement to get any co- sort of affirming care. Oh, I agree. And thankfully, more and more people are kind of leaning in that direction. Is what I've seen. Mm-hmm. So, like Planned Parenthood up here mm-hmm. for. It were the like few of the available providers to go to for hormones. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, they required the letters before they would start providing hormones. Um, but they've changed that. And, and I think that's awesome that they'll use informed consent now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we'll see more change if WPATH decides to update their guidelines because I feel like (laughs) it is outdated. And a lot of people lean back on that because they're not sure. And I think in general, uh, you know, some people who are less versed in it or just kind of getting their feet wet with the trans community are a little bit more nervous because it's a litigious country. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see that with that type of community. I mean, people don't ever turn around and say, I wish you wouldn't have done this. And, you know, you're never going to be able to pull those letters out and be like, well, I had this letter here to prove. (laughs) 
you know, it's just kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. So it was nice, though, that you don't require that even for cash pay patients, because some people do even for simple orchiectomies. Yeah, I understand. They do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually do a bunch of education for physicians and in, in my presentations, you know, I'll mention what the WPATH standards are, but also try to explain why I don't require those uh, letters or that, that same stipulation because it's unfair for a patient. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's great that more physicians are learning about this. Yeah. Yeah. And they're more open to providing like this safe, affirming care. But right. definitely still, I mean, I appreciate that you do all that education because I definitely think that it's very much needed. I don't know of anybody in Atlanta doing anything even close to a vaginoplasty or type of feminizing mm-hmm. surgeries. Yeah. Which is too bad because... It would be nice if, I mean, that's a, it's a Mecca uh, for the South, you know, mm-hmm. having people right there so that patients didn't have to travel so far would be nice. Yeah. And I mean, we have huge healthcare systems that would have the ability to incorporate that. And I just don't understand. So maybe one day. Yeah. Well, I, I guess my inclination for that is that we're in the conservative South. Mm-hmm. So. Um, fortunately, that's changing in many ways. And people are learning, you know, when their child is mm-hmm. talking to them about their identity, they become a lot more interested themselves and in figuring mm-hmm. out what's going on. Right. Um, so with more personal stories and publications about it, I think it's helped parents hugely. Um, yeah. in this area. And so it, it's going to change. It's going to continue to grow. And Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's I've already seen it change so much just in the last five years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, seriously, when I started working on patients in 2005, everybody was stealth. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they, they correctly felt like their lives were in danger if they were out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everybody that I operated on for their top surgery or whatnot at that point, they had already lost their family. Mm-hmm. They oftentimes had lost their jobs. And so they were secretly living this way. And that has completely changed now. Um, for the better, I have everybody's got family coming with them to the office or partners, you know, husbands mm-hmm. and wives that are supporting them, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's so much, so much better for the individual to have their supportive uh, family, friends, community, whoever it might be helping them through this. Well, so since you have kind of been through that evolution with those patients what would you say to the person who is still considering transitioning but is concerned about you know what their family might say like now that you've seen kind of the start and the end and the finish Mm -hmm. would you say to them that it's worth it like obviously you can't give solid advice on that like 100 percent. but would you have any words of wisdom for them oh well communication is my go-to for that Mm -hmm. It's multi-pronged, I guess. So I, I would want that person, that individual to be 
working with therapy, Mm -hmm. somebody who's actually well-trained in working with gender identity patients. Mm -hmm. So that's what they're going to benefit from directly. If they could bring a parent or whoever is in their family into talk with them to any of the counseling visits, that can be really beneficial too. You know, it takes a ton of courage. Mm -hmm. And I guess in the end, after having seen people who are much more mature in their 60s and 70s coming in saying, Mm -hmm. I wish I had done this when I was a kid. Um, I can tell these patients confidently that if you have explored this with your, you know, internally and and you've worked with your counselor, I think that you're going to be very much more happy with your life if you go ahead and pursue this earlier rather than later. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never an easy road. I don't think that's going to change in, you know, instantly. It's still going to be hard, but it, I think it's harder for people who have lived in denial for decades rather than the people who have figured out, oh man, I can do this successfully now and be happy, mm-hmm. be comfortable. So I, I'm, you know, of course I'm biased, but I'm, I'm in full support of if you're if you've explored this and you're comfortable with this sort of situation for yourself, do it. Mm-hmm. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I, ever since I started the podcast as well and just doing more marketing, I find a lot more people over the age of 40 to 50, like even in their 60s, like you mentioned, wanting to start their uh, transition. And particularly, I yeah. see the the older clients being in um, more trans feminine. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they were more inclined to put their transition on hold, but have a lot of regret about doing that. And so when I Mm -hmm. see them and they're getting on their medications and they start seeing physical changes and they're just like the light return to their eyes and their happiness. And then when they get connected with people like you who can do their the rest of their um, transition and their gender affirmation to whatever comfort level they're they're pursuing, it's just so rewarding. Very. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's you know, probably one of the best. <laughs> yeah, it is. So sadly, several patients of mine recently had their spouses pass away, but that actually was then their opportunity to finally transition fully. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were putting everything on hold for other people mm-hmm. instead of focusing on themselves and their own true happiness. Um, you know, it's, I can understand, like I said, it's going to be hard for sure. But to then, you know, 70 years old, finally get to live the way you want to live. It's mm-hmm. incredible. It's sad that they put it off for so long, but yet finally they get to do it. And that's that's really awesome. Yeah, totally liberating. But mm-hmm. you're right. And if, if I just wish that... Um, more people would kind of take that leap of faith because sometimes people do have a lot of losses, whether it's family loss and whatnot during their transition. But I think other times people are really surprised at their response when they do come out to their family and they're surprisingly supportive. Yeah. Yeah. That's been great to hear those stories. Like they thought, well, I'm going to take this leap and probably going to lose everybody in my church or in, mm-hmm. you know, at work. And thankfully, it hasn't turned out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty awesome. It is. It is.
So with all that in mind, too, when it comes to vaginoplasty for the older adult wanting to pursue that, are there any additional challenges that you might face or is recovery time any different? Sure. Well, anybody who takes on a vaginoplasty, I talk extensively about the postoperative vaginal dilation process Mm -hmm. because for a year after that surgery, they're going to be spending a ton of their time and effort with doing the vaginal dilation. Mm -hmm. That's for anybody who takes it on. Uh, The science behind that is that it takes about a year for scars to fully mature. So the vaginal dilation is fighting the natural process of the body trying to close down this track that we created. Mm-hmm. Right. For, for my more mature patients, if they have had BPH, so benign prostatic hypertrophy, mm-hmm. oftentimes that is relieved by them taking their estrogen, but not all the time. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they have a little more challenges with urination and that's not necessarily from the vaginal plasty, but still from their prostates because the prostate is not removed during the surgery. Mm-hmm. So that's a possibility. Also, sometimes a case where some more mature women will need to go back on a little bit of testosterone to fully climax. Mm. Uh, so I always tell people this, you know, cis women of a certain age mm-hmm. sometimes need to go on testosterone to help them with climaxing Mm -hmm. Um, when they're older they've had some vascular disease potentially or they're taking antidepressant medications there's a lot that comes into play with the sexual functioning and so that's something that I make people aware of before they have the surgery too Mm -hmm. Is, is that what you're yeah yeah I think that's really helpful and especially with your mentioning of the topical testosterone or even I don't actually know if you mentioned the route that it would be administered, but typically I prescribe the topical testosterone in those situations um, to help with climax because the serum levels don't get so high that they have to worry about any kind of masculinizing effects. Right. But yeah, it, exactly. That's what people are afraid of. Yeah. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. But if I can usually get them to a, a serum level of about 70, um, you definitely see an increase in sexual function without any kind of hair growth or anything like that. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And then the other thing that I I do often for those patients is give Tadalafil five milligrams daily. But I have found that it just really helps with blood flow and they can then have more um, sensation in their new clitoris. Anecdotally, it's been helpful. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. (laughs) So there, you know, some Mm -hmm. of these medications do get continued postoperatively and um, but it, it does function to help with sexual function. Hey everyone, I have a quick favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show, that would be wonderful. Not only does it allow you to get notified every time I publish an episode, but it also helps with my ratings and reviews, which what that means in podcast world is that I'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners. The whole reason why I started this show is to access people who needed the information. So please just go ahead and click subscribe. Then we can all be happy and continue to listen to this good quality free information. Thank you so much.
Okay, so other questions kind of diverting away from vaginoplasty would be, do you offer any options for patients identifying as non-binary or do you have any suggestions for them? Oh, well, we definitely do. So the most common presentation for non-binary is still masculine. So masculinization procedures, the top surgery is what Mm -hmm. we most commonly see. Mm -hmm. However, for male to Mm non-binary is oftentimes looking for some sort of genital reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, people have mentioned things like vaginoplasty with penile preservation mm-hmm. or uh, gender nullification surgery. Uh, these are things that I have not done yet. And it depends on several things coming from the patient, what their goals are. So I, w- I have discussed these in depth with patients that are considering these options and we would just have to explore things like for a gender nullification procedure which means their penis scrotum testicles are removed and they don't opt for a vaginoplasty then what are we going to do for their urinary system the lower urinary tract Mm -hmm. and so that question is very important because there are procedures that could actually make their long-term urinary tract functioning become a problem. Mm. Um, So like I've explored with patients whether or not they want to have their urine system drained Mm -hmm. um, towards the back, meaning like just towards right in front of the anus Mm. uh, versus something that's more anterior and up front. And those are the questions that I explore with patients to see, you know, what are we going to work out for your new anatomy and what's going to make you most comfortable? So you've heard about these Mm -hmm. options too, I imagine, right? Yeah, yeah. Less mm-hmm. less so the one that you just described, more so the penile-preserving mm-hmm. uh, vaginoplasty sure. has been more of a topic that, of discussion with my patients. Right. Now, that one actually seems easier in my mind to be mm-hmm. able to perform because you still have your safety of the urethra within the penis. And mm-hmm. so then that doesn't, doesn't put you at risk of having long-term urinary problems. Mm-hmm. Similar to the vaginal plasty, if we shorten the urethra in the gender nullification procedure, mm-hmm. then the urinary emptying would be coming right through regular skin. And that's a lot more difficult to manage because according to uh, urology reports, mm-hmm. the opening can constrict down. So then you have difficulty emptying the urine mm-hmm. or... Uh, the urethra can shorten and so it pulls back up in towards the bladder. Um, So these are the things that I want to avoid and not have my patient experience, even though we may be able to satisfy them as far as their genital dysphoria is concerned. I don't want to cause more problems. Right. More Uh, health complications and things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's why we're still exploring that. And, you know, I'm willing to do whatever I can to help with, patients who are pursuing these options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I, I, just to clarify too, I guess with the gender nullification, just in talks of it, for someone who is assigned male at birth, that still would not impede sexual function via the prostate. That's true. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
So I would not be able to remove a prostate. That would definitely be put in the hands of urology. Mm-hmm. But you're correct in that sense that that would still be an option for for that person. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think that penile vaginoplasty is a very interesting concept. And I'm not a surgeon, but uh, a lot of my patients are excited about it because they don't have a ton of genital dysphoria, but they do want to have like penetrative intercourse. that's not through the anal area. So I I think that one is super fascinating and could be really cool. I agree. You know, I I think that would be um, a fun procedure for me to do because I love doing the vaginoplasty too. Yeah. Um, But adding in like extra layers of consideration for the different incisions we may make, that sort of thing. It's really creative. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why I love to do what I get to do because it's like a work of art. Yeah, exactly. It really is. Yeah. I mean, I, cause I have talked about, you know, how, how would that look? And I guess, you know, it depends on the surgeon, but you could also, and the patient, what they desire potentially build out, still have a labia around the phallus. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That'd yeah. be cool. So, right. So there's a lot of possibilities and even like, um, so I contemplated with another patient, whether or not we were going to just shorten their penis Mm -hmm. and still leave some of it, but move it into a position where it would be lower and embedded kind of within the labia. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of possibilities. Yeah, for for sure. Well, and just to touch to a little bit more on your masculinization procedures, which is consists mainly of just top surgery. Is that right? It is usually. Yes. I mean, there are other features of like body contouring that, I don't do that much of, but it, you know, it, it all exists. Yeah. But you're not currently performing metatoidoplasty or phalloplasty. Is that correct? That is correct. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been asked to do it mainly for patients who uh, didn't have insurance and I'd be able to offer mm-hmm. a lower price. But since I've never done it, mm-hmm. and since these are, these are surgeries that have lots of known complications. Yeah. I sure. I recommend people go to somebody who's done all you know as many as possible. Yeah, you want somebody who's done a lot of these surgeries, not me being mm-hmm. the first time sort of thing. Right. So, you know, I, I've I've considered it, but I really really think people are better off going to somebody who's done more. Yeah, um, fortunately, there's not a lot of people who've done a lot of them. And even in the best of hands, there's going to potentially be problems with a stricture or fistula. Mm-hmm. Um, but even so, I think going to somebody who's done a lot of them would be the best answer for everybody. Yeah. I've heard with those types of procedures, it's not a matter of if there will be a complication. It's a matter of when and what type it will be and how to yeah. manage it. Um, just because of, of the nature of the surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but with the top surgery, like, how do you normally approach that as far as like chest size? Like, what can patients expect? Because I have a lot asking about like the periareola uh, versus the bilateral mastectomy. Do you like have a preference mm-hmm. or an opinion on those? Well, I have an opinion, but <laughs> 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 but uh, it's patient guided again. For so, sure. So I'm always starting off asking patients, okay, what is your goal? Mm-hmm. What do you want your chest to look like? And do you want to preserve nipple sensation? You know, mm-hmm. um, is it the contour? Is it hiding the scars? We we talk at length about what they want their chest to look like. 
in my hands, I think that I can achieve the best looking masculine contour and best looking scars with a bilateral mastectomy and then nipple grafts. Um, so people refer to that as a double incision. Mm-hmm. I just, I have done lots of the periareolar incisions, even on somebody who's super small breasted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm always kind of dissatisfied with the final scarring results. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can be touched up, but I've, I've tend to feel like, uh, we're going to potentially have to do another stage of some scar revision to make it look as good as possible with the areolar scar often tends to widen Mm -hmm. um, because it's under tension and it often can have rippling in it that doesn't smooth out as nicely as the scars that we get Mm -hmm. when we're putting them in the shadowed bottom of the pec major muscle. Right. Uh, Yeah, I noticed uh, that on your website. I was looking through a lot of the pictures of your post-op. And I was really impressed because I do feel like sometimes after the bilateral mastectomy, the scars are very, um, like, abrasive. They're very obvious. And I found, I don't know what, I mean, I'm not a surgeon again, but I don't know what differs from your technique to other surgeons, but that your scars were much well hidden and far less obvious. And I thought that was really cool. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I think that, you know, even though a lot of people focus on the scars, mm-hmm. I can promise you that they're going to fade and be hard to see over time. Mm-hmm. So I am actually, I know the scars are very important and we do a lot of meticulous sawing to get them to look good. Mm-hmm. I'm actually more concerned in many ways about the position of where they are mm-hmm. and the contour of the chest um, mm-hmm. more than anything. Yeah, And then I, I can't forget to mention this is that I'm going to take out all of the breast tissue so that patients don't have to be concerned about uh, mammograms down the road and potential breast cancer. And that does influence if patients have family histories of breast cancer when they talk with me. I don't want somebody to be left with breast tissue if they have a strong family his- history of breast cancer and then are going to be faced with as a a trans man down the road trying to get mammograms. Right. That's a challenge. Right, right. Yeah, that's uncomfortable. I mean, I like that approach. Why even worry about it? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, but, you know, if people tell me, oh, I want to keep my nipple sensation, then we're going to be doing a reduction rather than a mastectomy. So they're going to have to keep some of their breast tissue, which is in a cone around the main nerve to the nipple. And that, you know, that resulting contour is not so masculine at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then they'll be able to preserve nipple sensation down. And, you know, it's, it's all individualized. So I always tell people there's possibilities. So whatever you're dreaming of, let me know. And I'll give you the options I love to that. go from there. Yeah, it's oh, nice. Yeah. Because then it's not in my hands. It's in the patient's hands. They get to make their decision for themselves. And yeah. that's always much more comfortable for me. Yeah, I love that. Because that's kind of how I practice as well. You know, patients come to me and, you know, when we're talking about hormones, it's kind of like, well, as long as you don't go above what I recommend, because that could be harmful, you're really in full control of, of your dosing and what kind of um, results you're going to get very individualized yeah i don't i don't believe in cookie cutter medicine 
So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's awesome. So why are we like that and others are not is my question. Why do you think you have a comfort in that and practicing that way? Whereas, you know, in my field, I have colleagues that just tell the patient what they're going to get. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know if it's like interpersonal skill or just willing to meet people where they're at. I don't know. What do you think that is? Well, listening to you, I would say it's a level of confidence that you are comfortable in knowing what's safe and what's best for your patient and being able to guide them to whatever whatever they're seeking yet making it safe for them. Yeah. And I think I, I'm the same way. Like if it if it were unsafe, I would tell them. Yeah. So, I definitely give them their like limits that. like, okay, well, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. Like no that one, you know, because p- patients will often ask if they can go up on their T-dose. And that's a simple answer. Like above what I normally recommend is the highest limit. Like, no, because you're going to in- have negative outcomes. You're not going to masculinize any faster. And it's going to mm-hmm. aromatase estrogen and you might start bleeding again. Um, yeah. You know, but below that, like, yeah. So I think, yeah, to your point, it is a certain level of confidence to, to an experience. And then actually, you know, we're working with this like broad range of individuals. Mm -hmm. So if you tried to, can you imagine trying to tell every single one of our patients, this is the same thing for each one, Mm -hmm. one right after that, that just doesn't make any sense when they're approaching us from so many different uh, backgrounds and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So it's kind of nice to have the variability. I agree. And I agree. It sounds ludicrous, but unfortunately people are still doing it. So hopefully again, with a wave of change, (laughs) we'll see more providers like ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, it's been super great chatting with you today about all the services that you offer and your approach to care. It's, I think it's wonderful. And I think a lot of my patients are going to want to receive care from you. Thank you very much. It's really nice to get to talk to you in person. You know, this year has been crazy with COVID and I have not had so many uh, fun interactions with people. Right. But thank you so much for reaching out to me. And I clearly we both have uh, strong feelings about this community that we get to help and work with. Absolutely. Um, It's really wonderful to get to know other people that are also Uh, passionate and great providers for the patients. Awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very excited. And I'm like, to your point, (laughs) aside from everything that I've been able to do with the podcast, you're right. It has been hard this year. And uh, so this is really rewarding and Mm -hmm. I really enjoy connecting with people like yourself. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. Well, keep it going. I hope that you get a lot of traffic for, uh, thank you. You're helping people and expanding knowledge. It's awesome. Yeah, you know, I really do actually get quite a few listeners from this that establish care or reach out and ask about, you know, providers in their area and things like that. But since we are doing telemedicine, a lot of people have reached out and said, hey, I listened to your podcast and I want to get started. Um, nice. Yeah, oh, so that's oh. really good. But also, I mean, the reason why I started it was just to really play Mythbusters and to, as you know, these people don't have a lot of really good, reliable resources for to find information and for them to be able to hear from you without having to have the courage to reach out to your office first and to kind of hear what you're all about just adds more confidence to them to be able to go and say, okay, well, I want to reach out to Dr. McPhee for my top surgery or my vaginoplasty. It it helps a lot. They realize that you're a real person and you're not just a figure on your website, you know? 
Right, right. Yeah, I always like that sort of rapport to be growing and for somebody to hopefully be comfortable with me when they meet me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I find you very easy to talk to, so I'm sure patients have the same experience. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Remember, everybody, stay fierce and live your truth.